Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. Often and wrongly promoted as a biblical precept, unconditional love works against the purpose of Jesus in the New Testament. Nowhere is this point more clearly expressed than in the parable of the wicked vine dressers in Matthew chapter 21. What does Matthew's parable reveal about biblical grace and the problem of entitlement? Why does God allow the vine dressers to commit such violent crimes against not only his servants, but his own son? What implication do God's actions in the story have for human parents and teachers? As always, the pastoral wisdom gleaned from scripture looks foolish to human eyes, but then so too looked the stone in the eyes of the builders. You're listening to the Bible as literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 85 of the Bible as Literature podcast. On Sunday, the sermon was intriguing to me because you were talking about the parable of the landowner who sends his servants in order to get the fruit from his vineyard. And after they abuse each one of the servants, the people then receive the landowner's son and kill him. And... What you brought out that really got me thinking was how strange the landowner was acting. A lot of times we look at how the landowner is acting towards the people who are working in the vineyard. Oh, look how forgiving he is. Even after they abuse his servants, he keeps sending servants. But you brought out the point, what about how he's treating his servants that he keeps sending there? If you already know that these people are violent and they keep killing everyone that you send along, why would you send your son? Seems kind of strange. I've mentioned many times when preaching on these topics, and we had a long discussion about the Merciful Father, I think over a year ago. I don't remember which episode it was. But I made the point that the act of mercy shown by a father figure was irrational and even incorrect. And I would argue that as with the parable of the merciful father who takes back the prodigal son, I think we have an even greater scandal here in the parable of the landowner. Because if you know that there are a group of thugs that have either assaulted, abused, or murdered your employees, you've sent people to work with them and then they've come back in body bags. Why would you, A, send another group of people to deal with them unless you were sending them with the police? And then after that, why would you send your own son? If you try to spin it as though it's a story about God's mercy, you're going to end up with the kind of neurotic, foolish concepts of unconditional love that people impose on relationships, concepts of love that are not scriptural. I don't think that unconditional love is a biblical idea. I think it's wrong. Here one often hears the argument that the Lord is showing unconditional love to those rotten workers of the land. 
but at what cost? I think the Lord is being ruthless. And of course, our assumption is that the father figure in the story is the father of Jesus Christ. I mean, it's implicit. But the point is that he is being ruthless. He's willing to sacrifice the second group of servants. It's not as though that by showing mercy or patience toward the vine dressers, he's going to get a different outcome. He is not showing grace or demonstrating patience in order to heal them or to help them change their behavior. It doesn't work. When you give people an inch, they take a mile. This is a basic rule. If you have not figured this out yet, learn it now. If you give them a mile, they will take your country. So the question then is, why would God behave this way? And I called to mind our conversation last week that he is laying the foundation for a case against the vine dressers. Remember that the only true vine dresser in Isaiah is God. God is the one who cares for the vine. So even that metaphor sets the vine dressers up as imposters. And it's no joke that at the end of the story, as you pointed out in our earlier discussion, Richard, Matthew explicitly identifies the vine dressers with the leaders of the religious community. Now, in the story, it's the scribes and the Pharisees. But if by now you haven't figured out that it's the priests and the deacons and the monks, then you don't understand scripture. He's saying this group of people, the rulers of the religious institution, are the imposters and they will be taken out. I think a way that we can understand that very point is he says... I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people. He's not talking about those who used to hold the kingdom. It's those who believe they hold the kingdom because it's the people who believe they hold the kingdom that believe they have a right, that are self-righteous about their ownership of the inheritance. Because what do the vine dressers say? Oh, if we kill the son, we get the inheritance. It's not just about killing the son. It's about the self-righteous entitlement to the inheritance. And anyone who believes that they possess the kingdom of God has this entitlement. And this is what leads them to this murder, literally. But here's the point. You have this triplet. Three is always associated with judgment and finality. This pattern of one, two, three strikes you're out. Three is always when the Lord comes. And this, of course, is something that Father Paul Tarazi has demonstrated in his work. But you have it here again in the parable of the landowner. He sends the first bunch. He sends the second bunch. When you get to three, that's it. It's three strikes and you're out. So this parable is not a parable about unconditional love. It's exactly the opposite. It is saying that God's grace and his love is conditional. He provides for you with an expectation that you will act in a certain way. You were set free, to borrow Pauline language, you were set free from slavery to Caesar in order that you could be the slave of the father of Jesus. Now, if he set you free and adorned you with his robes and fed you with his food, and then when you slipped up, gave you all this stretch of time, one, the way a parent will say, one, two, three. You have three chances, and you still don't get it. If he sends his son, it's ruthless because he knows you're going to murder his son, which means he's willing to sacrifice his son to entrap you and hold you accountable. Modern Christians always go on and on and on about how Jesus paid a price to wipe away their sins. No. Jesus is the last straw. Jesus 
was God's ultimatum. You've been screwing up, and I'm going to send him as your last chance, and if you screw up after that, there's no hope for you. He's not your silver bullet. He's more like the last sign that I'm sending humanity, because beyond Jesus, you get no more chances. You don't deserve any more patience. You know, it reminds me of the passage from Zechariah about looking upon the one whom they pierced. Here they see the one they pierced, and they think, oh, maybe we can get more stuff if we pierce more people. In Zechariah, it took divine intervention by pouring out his spirit upon them so they would finally weep for the ones whom they killed. Here, there is no weeping. This is the problem, is that human beings left to their own devices, this is always how they're going to end up. As soon as the people believe they're entitled to this inheritance, they're going to keep doing whatever they need to to justify this entitlement. Now, I will say that what the father in the parable does, like the merciful father with the story of the prodigal who returns and so forth, what he does is exceptional because where a sane, rational human parent would not allow this kind of abuse and ultimately subject their own child to it, He does, because in the story of the Bible, God the Father is long-suffering and slow to anger and patient and willing to give humanity, whoever he's dealing with, whether it's Israel or the Gentiles, the nations, he's willing to give them as much time as possible to come around. But the funny thing is it never works. They never come around unless he intervenes. So in the same way that he intervened in Zechariah and opened their eyes to see that they were murderers, he's intervening here by sending his son. He's going to open their eyes to make them see that they're murderers. But it's not a foregone conclusion that everyone who looks upon the one whom they pierced will repent, which means that the coming of Jesus Christ in the gospel is the right hand of God's power coming in judgment. So again, This idea of unconditional love, I think, is an abusive idea. This was the point I made Sunday. Even God, who is exceptional in his patience with the human beings, even God has an expiration date. It's not that his grace to you isn't free and a gift. It's not that you shouldn't be thankful and rejoice. It's that you shouldn't be presumptuous. You should not feel entitled and become the fool who believes that no matter what you do, everything's going to be fine with God. It's not so. Not in the Bible that we read. And my point pastorally Sunday was that modern parents accept this distorted theology, which is an invention, and they try to raise their children that way. And so many sad, tragic cases of people with profound psychological dysfunction, emotional dysfunction, These cases very often flow from this silly idea of unconditional love because there wasn't a parent who said, no, if you do this, that's it. There are lines you can't cross. I don't believe that blood is thicker than water. I think that that's anti-scriptural. Blood is a choice that is made by the head of the tribe. You're either in or you're out. In scripture, that's what I read. That's what judgment is. You were brought in, you can be taken out, and that's what's happening in the story. Well, if anyone thinks that this story is about unconditional love, they have to read towards the end here. He will bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at their seasons. The end is not good for the people he sent, but the end for those who are receiving 
are also not going to end up well because he's going to make sure they end very poorly and find other vine growers. Now, I think it's important for people who think that this is talking about Christians superseding Jews, which is not the case, but those who do think so realize that if you are now a worker in the vineyard, it does not mean that you are immune to what these previous vine workers fell victim to, their own entitlement. And the problem is, if you're not aware of that, you're going to fall into the exact same thing. Now here, at least the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables. They understood he was speaking about them. Hopefully, we don't end up less insightful than the Pharisees and the priests in lacking the message that this is about us. If you want to understand how the story functions, you have to think of the Empire Strikes Back when they're standing on the bridge of one of these huge imperial cruisers and the commander of the ship has just let Darth Vader down. And so he's standing there with his second in command and Darth Vader kills him for letting him down and turns to the other guy and says, now you're in charge. So now you're the vine dresser and you saw what happens if you screw up, you can be taken out. The guy says, thank you, Lord Vader, but there's a bead of sweat forming on his forehead because he understands that the threat against your predecessor is a warning to you. That is how scripture works. This is essential for understanding this passage because on the one hand, these are wretches and they should have known better. But those of us who hear the parable or who read the parable, who hear this parable, are doubly under judgment because we know what the owner of the vineyard does to those who don't give their fruit. And I think we also must understand that the correct response to being someone who is gifted this land to work it and to be able to provide the fruits to the Lord of this vineyard is gratitude, being grateful for the grace. Like you were saying before, the grace is something that's given freely to us, but we can't stop feeling grateful for it. We don't receive it and say, ah, that was really nice. Thanks, God. Hey, by the way, why do you keep sending these people? We would like to have more. Thank you very much. Can't happen that way. Entitlement and gratitude are incompatible. That's why Western society has so many broken families and so many issues. Because entitlement and gratitude are incompatible, and life without gratitude is unlivable. Life without gratitude is non-functional. All you're left with is anger, bitterness, narcissism, and cruelty. And here, the knockout punch in the story is this quote, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This beautiful quote from the Psalms crystallizes the point that I'm making, that Jesus Christ is the manifestation of God's exceptional patience and generosity and kindness and grace towards Israel, and by extension, the Gentiles through this grace. But the problem is, if you mess with that grace, if you dishonor that grace by not being graceful, that becomes God's strike against you. Mercy in scripture is part of a double-edged sword. The other side of the blade is judgment. And in Matthew, it's very pronounced. And the point that I was trying to make Sunday is that parents have to deal with their children the same way that God deals with the vine dressers. Well, it's like two children, and it's time to do the dishes. And one of them says, I don't want to have to do the dishes if my brother won't help me do the dishes. So you're saying you don't need to do the dishes? Those dishes are dirty because your mother made food for you. So how about rather than being angry at your sibling for not helping you, 
How about out of gratitude to your mother for making food for you, you do the dishes, and I don't want to hear anything about what your brother is or is not doing. This is the difference between entitlement and gratitude, is that you do, you act correctly out of gratitude. And one of the things that underlines this is right before this parable is the parable of the two sons, the one who said he was going to work and he didn't, and the one who said he was not going to work but did anyway. It has to do with what is your action. Through your actions, you show the gratitude. And the gratitude that the child feels is irrelevant. The gratitude that he shows by just doing the dishes is what matters. One's actions being the essential definition of whether you're doing the right thing or not and not the feelings of gratitude or entitlement. It's the actions. And the actions of entitlement are taking advantage, not rendering fruit, and killing those who remind you that you have to turn the fruit over. When you become a parent, you're not allowed to say, I don't know how to do this. You're not allowed to say, I'm not worthy. You're not allowed to say, who am I to do this? And that's true of any station in life, but we're talking about parents today. When you become a parent, a mother or a father, you become the function of God's authority for your household. You become godly. You have to parent with godly authority, the way you have to teach with godly authority. People struggle with that in this culture which is hyper-personalized. Just as someone would say, who am I, which I think is a silly question. You're a parent. Who you are is immaterial. You have a job to do. People will say, who do you think you are? Because everyone thinks of it in terms of personality. But it's not about personality. It's about function. And if you don't manifest the godly function towards your children, which is a mode of behavior, which is at the same time exceedingly merciful and exceedingly impatient, and anyone who really knows how to teach, I mean, not spout ideas off and hope people figure it out on their own. Anyone who knows how to teach, which means to help people see, to open their minds to information and knowledge and experience, knows that you have to manifest these contradictions. You have to be exceedingly patient and exceedingly impatient at once because God is all things to all men. You have to do what you have to do to accomplish what needs to be accomplished. But what people want to do is say, oh, God is so patient here. Okay, we figured out what we should be. We should be unconditionally loving. No, it doesn't work. Nothing in life works that way. You know, we are often critical of Western society. And we talk about why Western society is unraveling. I mean, it is right in front of our eyes. But this doesn't mean that other societies are better. And this is what people always miss when they hear me talk. Because every society unravels. It's just as easy to point out what's great about Western society that other cultures could learn from. And there's plenty. But there's no way I'm going to tell the Westerners if we want to help their society last a little longer because they'll just congratulate themselves. Look how great we are. We have democracy. Blah, blah, blah. At the same time, you take old world societies, which were hyper-pragmatic. That hyper-pragmatism is something we lack. Americans fancy themselves pragmatic, but we're all becoming Hellenists. We're all living in our ideal dream world of neoliberalism when the reality is Yemen. So we could do with some of the hyper-pragmatism of the pre-Hellenic Romans or of the Middle East. We could use some of that, even though some of that pragmatism may have also caused their society to become too cynical or too tribal or too inward-looking. 
it's not that one is right and one is wrong. It's that wisdom is understanding that everything has a function and a place and a utility. So I think there's much to be gleaned from these stories in terms of how we teach and how we live and how we parent and how we shepherd and how we nurture and how we judge and so forth. How do we foster gratitude in order to stave off entitlement? Correct. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.